live from the JLE in London, you're listening to History for the Curious, the podcast. 20 minutes with Rabbi Aubrey Hirsch, hosted by myself, Menat Reisner. Join us as we cross continents, sail through the centuries, tracing lives, uncovering events, and following epic journeys to reveal the untold stories and the mysteries that have impacted our history and shaped us into who we are today. And good evening, Rabbi Hirsch. Welcome to a one-off podcast that's a bit different. It's partly a trip down memory lane, partly a biography, and it will include also responses to questions as promised. But I thought that seeing that what we're doing is a bit unusual, I wanted to share some statistics with you, our audience, who are responsible for all our listens and for which we're very grateful as the cliche goes it's all thanks to you we've just hit the incredible milestone of 200,000 downloads over six and a half million minutes of jewish history listened to and all thanks to you rabbi hirsch we started at about 800 downloads a month and we are currently at 30,000. it's been an incredible trajectory spotify is actually the platform that most our listeners prefer followed by I would say an equal amount of listeners on Apple, Podbean, Google Podcasts, and then the other streaming platforms. For the many that have asked, if you have a Spotify or Apple account, it's certainly the easiest to listen to. But if not, Google Podcasts is a very easy platform to navigate. But you can find the podcast on all the others as well, including 24-6, the latest Jewish streaming app. Just out of interest, the top three most listened to episodes are The Origins of Christianity, Shabtai Tzvi and the Vilna Gon featuring Rabbi Dr. Akiva Tetz, and then of course the Holocaust episodes. Throughout the course of the podcast, we've received hundreds of messages from a huge variety of our followers, men, women, professors, doctors, rabbis, and we appreciate them all and generally respond to all of them too. There's been interesting suggestions and tips which have all been considered and sometimes implemented. We're always happy to receive feedback, whether it's positive or constructive criticism. And we're always looking for ideas to broaden the reach of the podcast and enable every curious Jew on the planet to hear high quality content. So if you have a WhatsApp group on which you could share this podcast, we'd be delighted. The listeners are based all over the planet with the UK and the USA each on 35% and Israel at 15%. The remaining are across Canada, South Africa, Australia, Belgium, France, Switzerland, quite standard, but we even have listeners in more unexpected locations such as India, the Philippines, Japan, Jamaica, Uzbekistan, South Korea, Iran, and Zimbabwe which shows that it's fascinating how far a reach you can have with quality content. But I think more importantly, how our history is still an international subject of fascination. As Mark Twain puts it, all things are mortal, but the Jew. All other forces pass, but he remains. Everyone is curious about our history and Rabbi Hirsch, over the last 85 episodes, you've shown us a glimpse into our rich heritage with our many ups and downs, to put it mildly. But at the core, an incredible nation that has survived against all odds. 
And History for the Curious is one of the most listened to Jewish history podcasts in the world. And that is, of course, due to Rabbi Hirsch's incredible skill at weaving through complicated timelines, bringing major figures and places to life with his incredible research and detail. I've sometimes had to call Rabbi Hirsch and it could be in the wee hours of the morning and he's researching for this very podcast for the listeners. So thank you for your incredible efforts. People have actually asked if we're going to run out of content soon, but Rabbi Hirsch assures me that we have so much to our colorful and dramatic history that there are hundreds of episodes that could still be made. So keep tuned and make sure you follow and subscribe on whatever platform you're listening to. I know I say this every week, but it's important that is probably the easiest way that the podcast can reach more people. So that's enough from me. I just thought I'd give a quick update that would possibly interest our listeners. Over to you, Rabbi Hirsch. A big thank you to all our listeners out there and to you, Rabbi Reisner, for putting up with me. And just to echo that if any of you have WhatsApp groups that you are happy to publicize this podcast on, if appropriate, it would be very useful to get the word out there. Okay, so a few weeks ago, somebody emailed us from Lakewood out of the blue that they love the podcast and they'd like to donate towards it. And we corresponded and we discovered that they have a fascinating ancestor whom we will be discussing in a few moments. And they have also agreed to sponsor our digital expansion and SEO, for which we are very grateful. The biography is Rabbi Chaim Yaakov Naftali Zilberberg, who was born in 1860 and died in 1930 and was known as Rabbi Naftali Virshava. He was a student of both Rabbi Sorol Salant and of the Beis HaLevi, Rabbi Yosef Dov Soloveitchik of Brisk, who was the originator of the Brisk dynasty of Torah. And he was also very close with the Nativ and Chovet Chaim. In fact, when Rabbi Chonon Vassaman would speak about Rabbi Naftali, he would be particular to describe him as Hagon HaTzadik. Yet... Interestingly, at the same time as being close to so many of the greatest Lithuanian Gedalim of his period, he also travelled to the Avne Nezer, the Rebbe, and to the Svas Emes, the Gera Rebbe. Now, during his lifetime, he spent many years as a member of the Beisdin of Warsaw, because after the passing of the Teferis Yaakov, there were no longer any single Rabbonim who were given the title of Rabbi of Warsaw. It was presided over by Avard, and of which he was a member. Zilberberg spent much time and effort to strengthen the observance of Shabbos. He would go around to shopkeepers on a Friday afternoon to persuade them to close their shops at sunset. And he also printed a newspaper for the strengthening of halacha generally, at a time where assimilation was starting to become a moving force in the larger cities of Poland. He authored a number of Svarim, although most of them were not actually printed during his lifetime. It was actually the efforts of his descendants, particularly his grandson, that brought them to print. And he expended a lot of effort in printing his own grandfather's and father's writings and uh, Rebekiva Eger's Drush Chiddush. 
he was also very involved in the printing of the Svarim of the Maral Tzintz, who is well known and who promised just before he died that anyone who prints his Svarim, he would defend them in heaven. And he made this promise on his deathbed on Monday the 3rd of ER 1833 with a great number of people in attendance, including the Chadush Rim. Interestingly, Rav Zilberberg was actually buried in very close proximity to the Maraltzins in Warsaw, and you can still see and visit both of their quorum to this day. His writings span commentaries on the Mishnah, Shulchan Aruch, Rambam, Musa, Tfila, Chumish, and at one stage recently, one of the auction houses was selling a letter he'd written to Rabbi Yosef Chaim Zonenfeld, who was the Rav of Yerushalayim, in 1903, where he asked to daven for his own refuah, and that uh, he should send people to the coastal to daven on his behalf, whom he would pay for. And he'd made Rabbi Yosef Chaim Zonnefeld's acquaintance because he lived in Eretz Yisrael for a year or two. He was known for his tremendous diligence, his hasmada in learning. At night, he would occasionally place his feet in cold water in order to stay awake or light a candle so that the heat from it would prevent him from falling asleep. He would often sleep on a bench rather than in his bed or just put his head down on a table. And 15 years before he died, he had to undergo an operation. He was concerned whether the anaesthetic would be fatal, so he refused to let them administer it. He started learning, and when he was immersed in a sort of a particular piece, a sugya in shas, they carried out the operation without an anaesthetic, during which he went through nine daft nine pages of Gomorrah. And during his lifetime, especially the latter part, he suffered from illness. He often had to learn with his eyes closed because of the pain that he was in. He also tried as much as possible to serve other Talmidei Chachomim to help them. Now, of course, anyone who knew him wouldn't allow him to do so, given his stature. But he was once in Karlsbad, a spa town, and the head of the Bezdin of Brody, Rabbi Steinberg, who did not know him, was there. So Chaim Yaakov Naftali managed to be his attendant for a few days, until three days in, when this head of the Bezdin expressed interest in visiting Rabbi Zilberberg. So he disappeared in order not to be discovered. After the pogroms in Kishinev in 1903, he helped f- raise funds for the Jews there. And post-World War I, when there was a famine in Russia and eventually when religion subsequently came under attack, it affected him terribly to the point that he eventually became bedridden as a result. But in 1930, there was a meeting in Asifa to help the unfortunate Jews of Russia. And he sort of dragged himself to this gathering out of his bed because he felt that his presence would make a difference. He returned home and became even more ill, enough that unfortunately he passed away from that illness. In one of his svarim, Darke Chaim, he writes about tefillah, prayer, and he quotes the famous, the very well-known question of the Sefer HaIkorim, who asks, how do we understand tefillah? Meaning, if it's already been decreed upon an individual that they will not get X, then what's the point of praying for it? And if it's the case that X will be given to them, then why do you need to pray for it? So, you know, the conundrum of Tvila. And the answer that the Mbalei Koram gives is that the result of 
humility that a person has when he prays creates a change in him. And he now merits having something done for him that he would not have had prior to this activity. He is changed, and therefore the decree changes as well. To which Rabbi Zilberberg now asks the following question. How can we fit this with the idea of somebody else governing on your behalf for you? How can another person help through their prayers, given that the recipient never changed personally? If the whole concept of prayer is that your humility allows you to merit something new. And, you know, he goes on to quote various well-known Gomorrahs that make it clear that you're allowed, in fact, you're even encouraged to ask others to daven for you. There's a well-known Gomorrah in Bova Basra that whoever has an ill person, a chile in a house, should go to a chochom, that they should pray on their behalf. And how does that work? So he answers that prayer does create a connection and change, but the chiddush of these Gomorrahs, of somebody else praying on your behalf, is that even if the connection to God actually happens in somebody else, those prayers will still be useful and helpful for the person who needs them. Why? Because of your humility in going to others, which means that you're admitting that you're not in charge of the world or of your life. As a final piece, he was once asked by somebody who had difficulty in raising his children if he knew of any segulois to help the cause. And he said, yes, there's a segula that we find in Parshas Yisrael, which we sort of recently came across in the context of Shvurs. If you listen to my voice, says Hashem, v'hiyisem li segula. And he said, that's the greatest segula a person could ever try to achieve studying Torah. <laughs> That's never the school of people want to hear. That's <laughs> correct. So thank you for mentioning your ancestor, which has given me the opportunity to look into his history, and to his Torah. And thank you for your sponsorship. Yes, I echo that. Thank you very much. And of course, sponsorship opportunities are available. You just need to reach out via podcast at jle.org.uk. And perhaps Rabbi Hirsch will find something on your ancestry too, but not <laughs> a guarantee. No. Okay. So as promised, let's now look at some of the emails we've received. Email from a woman called Sarah based in Israel regarding the Noidbi Huda in Prague. So you've spoken about his statesmanship and the line, the delicate line he had to tread with Empress Maria Theresa and her son Joseph II. What was the Noidbi Huda like as an individual? People always like to hear the personal right. side. Okay, so this goes back to our series on 18th century Prague, almost at the very beginning of the podcast. Yes, we spoke about the Nodi Behuda, particularly in part four. So he needs really a full biography, and that will happen. But in terms of a couple of vignettes, perhaps, beyond his knowledge and statesmanship. So he asked very little for himself. He never was particular about his own honour. He asked that there be no honorifics on his matseva, on his gravestone, to the extent that the community, 25 years after his passing, put up a second matseva because the first appeared so deficient as if they you know, didn't care about him. And he was in Prague for nearly 40 years. Terror was the mainstay of his life. He always learnt standing up until very old age. And during the controversy between Rav Yaakov Emden and Rav Yonson it was of great anguish to him. 
because of the desecration of terror that was resulting from it. So he wrote a letter of mediation in order to try and achieve peace between the two of them, which was unique. Also, famously, he gave advice to somebody who said to him that they didn't have time to learn Torah because too many people came in and out of their house, you know, as if they were saying that they are too communally involved. So the Nodi Behuda said, it's very simple. If the people who come to your house are wealthy, ask to borrow money from them. And if they're poor, you should lend them money. In both cases, I guarantee you, you'll never see them again. <laughs> I actually heard that as a Jewish joke. I didn't right. realise it had a uh, a, a real source. Yes, absolutely. Okay, on to the next one. We left with two riddles of Rabbi Modena at the end of the podcast, which you did not give the answers to. Correct. So Boruch in northwest London suggests his answers to them, and I, I printed them out here. Let's remind ourselves first of the questions. The first question was, I saw the dead live in the living grave. The grave turned and the dead prayed. And the second question was, subtract 30 shloishim from 30, and you have 60 left. Right, so he wrote, the one with the graves is the answer to do with Yecheskel, with the bones where he did Trias HaMesim. I'm afraid not. We'll give you the answer in a moment. And on the second one, the shloishim and shloishim has it anything to do with the Gemara in Yovomus 83a. So... Actually, the answer to the first is the grave is Yoino praying in the stomach of the of the whale of the fish. And the second requires Hebrew and Gematria. If you take the word Shloshim, which is 30 in Hebrew, and you remove the letter Lamud, which is numerically 30, uh-huh. you will be left with Shishim, which is 60. <laughs> so no one got the answers. Not Rabbi yet. Rabbi Modena has stumped people for centuries. Yes. Okay, next, we are going back to our very first podcast, and a almost anonymous email, that was basically initials, asked, were there any Jews in England between the expulsion in 1290 and the readmittance in 1655? That's quite a long period. Yes, not really. Jews, um, as we are aware, would be officially banned from England for over 350 years. Now, as early as 1306, negotiations did start for their return because by then the Jews had also been kicked out of the Kingdom of France, but it it just never happened. However, uh, there were very short-term exceptions. In 1410, the King Henry IV brought over a Jewish doctor from Bologna in Italy called Eliahu Ber ben Shabtai, who was subsequently the physician to Popes Martin V and Eugenius IV. He was allowed to practice medicine anywhere in the country. He was allowed to bring with him a quorum of 10 males to allow him public worship which means a minion. And in fact, in the previous year, the famous mayor of London, Richard or Dick Whittington, invited another Jewish doctor, uh, Samson de Mirabeau, to help his wife. And the reason they would do so is because many Christians believe that Jews were in league with the devil, and therefore they were initiated into certain medical knowledge through black magic and could cure illnesses which Christian doctors would find too challenging. A century earlier, 
in 1309, Isaac the Jew was allowed to come to England to raise money from the Christians on behalf of the sort of the ransom of an English knight who'd been taken prisoner in the Holy Land. And it's assumed that the reason he undertook what was really a pretty perilous voyage to England, which was free and empty of Jews, was in an attempt to recover perhaps some of the items that Jews had been forced to abandon in England, maybe Svorim, but that is unknown. Okay, on to the next one. David wrote back in October, I have recently become aware of the podcast and have become an immediate binge listener. I'm almost completely caught up. I didn't have to read that, but but why not? Then he goes <laughs> on to make two points. Number one, he writes, in the intro to each episode, you say 20 minutes with Rabbi Hirsch. But none of the episodes are 20 minutes. True. <laughs> Apologies. And his second point, in the US California Gold Rush episode, he writes that he was expecting Rabbi Hirsch to make at least a passing mention of the Frisco kid. <laughs> okay, so um, yes, we do have to remake the intro. All the episodes are now 30 minutes or more. Uh, but sadly, the Frisco Kid being fictional doesn't make the cut, although it must be said that it was a very sympathetic portrayal of orthodoxy and an orthodox rabbi, which many films today, or indeed the New York Times, CNN, BBC, could learn a lot from. <laughs> right. A Rabbi Korn, or Khan Rabbi Korn, wants to know, to what degree is the Shabtai Tzvi episode relevant to us? Is it just history or does it have any relevance to us today? today? You did sort of touch on it. Yes. I think the first thing to recognize is that Kabbalah is here to stay. It forms part of what we do, both within and beyond halacha. Um, but the issue, perhaps even the danger, is that there has developed within Orthodox Judaism a series of mantras of insurance policies against third-party fire and theft, which seem to supersede Judaic practice. You know, things like skulus and saying certain prayers at particular times of the year, which are not based on rabbinic precedent. So, you know, I'm excluding uh, a prayer like the Tefillah Sashloh, for, for instance. Or, you know, the idea of saying prayers where we have no authentic authorship of them. Um, whole books of them. I, at one stage, I owned three volumes of prayers of which, you know, maybe 30% came from an accepted source. Uh, you know, do this, it'll remove all your tsaurus. No, no. In a way, COVID exposed these beliefs. People decided to act without consultation within halacha. Now, of course, there was more than one legitimate approach to COVID, but that legitimacy is conferred by halacha, potentially life-threatening situation. A question has to be asked and needs to be answered, but by people who would be qualified in parallel situations. Whom would you ask about, uh, I don't know, elderly parents fasting on Yom Kippur? or childbirth situations on, on Shabbos? Would you, you know, make use of gematrius that was sent to you by WhatsApp? <laughs> you know, uh, or would you ask a rabbi of standing who, equally importantly, is involved in klal matters and knows the responsibility of leadership? We all know that Reb Chaim Kanievsky's itself came up with solutions to problems which were sometimes unique, unusual, but he knew all of Torah. 
and he was, you know, besieged by people all day long. So he had the right uh, that gives him the right to decide. But someone generally who perhaps knows a lot of terror, but isn't a Poisic or somebody involved in the Klull, whether they want to answer this question for themselves or for others, that's a form of Shabtai Tzvi talking. I make the rules. Well, very interesting answer. Perhaps an episode on different scholars through the centuries. <laughs> Maybe. Ayn Ra. Um, from Aaron with an H. I hope you're well. I recently listened to your podcast on Christianity for a second time, and I think they are simply terrific. Uh, side note, Rabbi Hirsch, she's not the first one who said that they've listened to the Christianity ones multiple times. You said it was required listening for every Jew. I think people took you seriously. So in one of the podcasts, Rabbi Hirsch mentions that a major issue with the Christian belief is that Yeshu apparently told people that he was the saviour. However, since this was at a time when the Beis HaMikdosh stood and there was a Kohen Gadol, why would a saviour be necessary at all? I've just been learning Soita. So that's the point that I had made right now. Here starts, I presume, his question. I have just been learning Soita 41a, where the Gemara tells us that even when there was a Kohen Gadol and a Beis HaMikdosh, there was still a need for Klal Yisrael to be saved. She'amcha Yisrael tzrichin li Yoshua, or li Yoshea. It is therefore so strange that Yeshu would say that he has come to save the Jews, even if there was a base of Mikdash and a Kohen Why is it Godel. so strange? Right. right. Okay. Klal Yisrael always need Yeshua. They always need to be involved in Tefillah. I mean, the world rests on three pillars, one of which is Tefillah. But that doesn't equate to a redeemer in human form. That's only when we're talking about a macro geulah. Yes, they need to be helped always, but not a helper in, in that sense. as a human right. being. Yes. And we have someone called Svi from London, who I happen to know well, and he wanted episodes on the Rothschilds and Herzl. Yeah, well, I met him yesterday, in fact, in Bournemouth, and I told oh, him, we that, both know him. <laughs> that Rothschild is a whole series which we will do, Mietoshem. But Herzl gets a mention because Herzl was born in Budapest in 1840, and I had left him out. Not just that, but he was born next door the Dohani Neolog Synagogue, which we mentioned uh, was built as the largest synagogue in Europe. His parents were affiliated to the Neolog movement. They were German-speaking. They were pretty assimilated. And the house once stood independently. There are photos of it during the 19th century, but it's now incorporated into the Dani itself. And speaking of the Dani, in reaction to it being built and to the Neologs, the Orthodox issued a series of regulations for synagogues which included various points. It's forbidden to pray in a synagogue where the beamer is not in the center, where it's been moved to the front, which is church-like. The chazan and the people leading the prayers may not wear any garments or particular for the, you know, for the services, once again, because that's what they did in church. And weddings can be celebrated only under the open sky. Very particular about that in that part of the world. Okay, and still keeping with the Budapest theme, this email is from family Gerber, or Gerber, I'm not sure how you pronounce it. Did the Mendels, who were the lay leaders of the Jews in Hungary in the Middle Ages, have any known descendants? So, yes, I received that email too, and it needed some research, and the answer is yes. The Taban family, 
were descendants. They were also a dynasty of court Jews who played an important role representing the interests of Hungarian Jews at the Habsburg court in, in Vienna in the 1700s. To mention a few by name, Avraham Mendel Taben, who died in 1768, is referred to in Jewish sources as Manig um, Farnes Hamadina, which means that he was the recognized head of the Jews of the whole country. From a wealth perspective, for 40 years, he had the monopoly of the entire output of all imperial cloth. And he intervened with Empress Maria Theresa regarding the blood libel of Orkuta. His son was Koppel Mendel Taben, who was the most famous of this family. When Jews were expelled from various places in Hungary, which we mentioned last time, Koppel used his own money to support hundreds of them. When Emperor Joseph II's toleration decree prohibited people having bids, it was he who used his influence with the emperor to make him rescind that in 1783. And when the toll on bridges was made twice as high for Jews as for non-Jews, he invested a sizable sum into buying all bridge revenues. And then he could do what he liked in terms of the toll, so he was able to reduce the humiliating extra toll. And one last episode about him. In 1799, he was entrusted by the Jews of Hungary with the task of asking the emperor to maintain their exemption from the military. And uh, they provided him with a gift of 21,000 gold ducats to deliver to the emperor. But Koppel did something unexpected, uh, I would almost say unheard of. Instead of submitting the sort of the Jews' humble request to the emperor, he had the temerity to argue that if the Jews were fit to serve as soldiers in the army, like the other subjects of the emperor, then they should be allowed to enjoy all the rights his majesty's other subjects had and be emancipated. And he had planned in advance to confront the emperor, and in preparation for doing so, he'd fasted all day long. He was so carried away by the emotion of his plea that he actually raised his voice in the imperial presence and uh, according to an account of the audience he lost his self-control to such a degree that he he said words that almost amount to a threat and said one thing i can tell your majesty in all humility until now, no oppressor of the Jews came to a good end. Pharaoh, Nebuchadnezzar, Homon, Titus. And at this point, the emotion was so much, was too much for him, he actually lost consciousness. And he fell flat on his face and they, they brought him home. He regained consciousness and a messenger came bringing the decision of the emperor that the Jews would continue to be exempt. But it seems that his fainting was caused by a stroke. So on doctor's advice, he went to Carlsbad for the healing waters. Second time we've mentioned it today. But he deteriorated on the way and he died in Prague. His brother, Wolf, was a moil to 1,300 boys, kids, 
and the records he kept of these uh, circumcisions constitute an important historical source. Wow. Gershon Revach asked, Shalom, Rabbi Hirsch. Thank you for your fascinating podcast on the Vilna Gon. One quick question. What is the source of the story about the Dibuk and the mysterious Rav Tzemach? Okay, so the answer to that is, I can't find that source on Rav Tzemach. And the fact that, as I mentioned, that a Dibuk testified that he and the Vilna Gon and the Mezritra Magid were the greatest of the generation. So here's an appeal to the listeners. If any of you do know that source, we would all be grateful to hear of it. Because I'm sure someone will send something in. All right, I can't find it. Okay, I think that can wrap up this one-off special. Hope everyone enjoyed hearing a bit of the feedback we get. That is not all the questions we've been asked, but no. we've taken a variety of episodes and we're coming up to half an hour now. So just to finish off, can you tell us what is happening over the next few weeks? So we are fortunate to have Rabbi Zimmerman join us for a two-part series on history and halacha. Then we will do a two-part on the Masera and the Sinai experience and the truth, history and accuracy thereof, which we mentioned. Finally, yes, this has uh, yes, been requested throughout since yes. you mentioned it. And then a four-part on the Holocaust during the three weeks as things stand. Thank you very much. Please, everyone, keep spreading the word and carry on making this podcast as successful as it is and carry on sending the feedback, the questions, the comments, the suggestions, the criticisms to podcasts at jle.org.uk and we'll see you next week.